from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Perhaps one of the most prolific and influential congressmen in the country is Ted Lieu. You watched him deliver quite an eloquent case during the impeachment proceedings, and he's been on just about every news show you can imagine because of his influence, his candor, and his perspective. He's here today, but we're going to put him on the spot a bit. We're going to be asking him for private thoughts that you don't hear on cable news about such subjects as what it's like deep inside Congress day to day, how he felt on January 6th, and I'm going to ask him to deep dive into the ambitious Biden infrastructure plan and explain details that I know you want clarity on. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. So first, my co-host again, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials in so many countries. And she's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Welcome, Jane. Nice to see you again. Always wonderful to be here. And welcome, Congressman Liu. As you've heard, our special guest. As you know, Ted Liu is one of our most influential congressmen in the country. You've seen him a lot lately because, well, he's so sought after for his perspective on a myriad of very tough issues. Ted is serving his third term in Congress, representing California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. And he's a busy boy. He sits on the House Judiciary Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He also serves as a co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. And Ted has established himself as a leader on the environment, cybersecurity, civil liberties, government ethics, and even the veterans. Simply put, Ted Lieu is in the middle of so many issues that are shaping our thought process and the governance in the U.S. today. We're pleased to have Ted Lieu here on Meet Me in the Middle. Welcome, Ted. Nice to see you. Thank you, Bill. And hello, Jane. Honored to be back on your show. Ted, if you don't mind, we're going to start right off asking you to bare your soul a bit. Months later, how have you personally been changed by your experience on January 6th in the Capitol? Thank you for your question. It is still amazing to me that that insurrection even happened. The thought that you had a mob of people actually invade the Capitol, beat up police officers, and cause the damage that they did, all in an attempt to keep the former president in power, is astounding. History books will write about this, and they will very clearly say that the former president of the United States incited this insurrection. And history will also record that he was the only president to be impeached twice by two different Congresses. And last impeachment was the most bipartisan impeachment vote ever, followed by the most bipartisan conviction vote ever. And in most contexts, a vote of 57 to 43 is not close. It was a clear win. Unfortunately, their conviction power in the U.S. Senate does require a two-thirds vote, which is just a very high bar to meet. Right. So where were you at the time on January 6th when the insurrection happened? So they actually did not want most members of Congress on the floor because of the pandemic. So many of us were in our offices. I was on the fourth floor of the Cannon House office building. And I remember hearing these very loud bangs on the different doors in the hallway. And the banging got louder as it came closer to my door. And then eventually a Capitol Police officer comes rushing in and says, you need to evacuate immediately. Uh, So my chief of staff and I went down five flights of stairs to the basement. We took the tunnels to the next office building over that the Capitol Police officer said was safe and secure. And eventually we made our ways to Congressman David Sisley's office, where we then, while on lockdown, started drafting the article of impeachment when we realized that the former president had incited this insurrection. 
Did you feel safe at the time, Ted? Did you feel like you were well enough protected or were you actually feeling quite exposed or did you know what was going on at the time? I think for the first half hour, I wasn't exactly sure what was happening. It became clearer after a while that a mob was in fact invading Capitol Hill and that the foreign president had incited this mob. But after the first, I'd say half hour when we were on lockdown, in Congressman Cicely's office, uh, I did not feel fear. The first half hour, I really didn't know what was happening. And the first few minutes, I did feel fear because you don't normally have a Cal police officer rushing your office telling you to evacuate immediately. We're all a kind of a sum total of our experiences. And I wonder if you could just describe how personally you have been changed by that experience. And is your perspective different? Do you find that you think about things differently from that experience? It's maybe realize that democracy is fragile. Uh, it's something you have to fight for. You can't take for granted. And also that words matter. This mob showed up on January 6th from all over the United States because the president told them to. This mob then marched down Pennsylvania Avenue because the president told them to. And this mob went ahead and invaded the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the Electoral College results because the president told them to. And words do matter. And it's very important that elected officials make sure that their rhetoric doesn't cause people to go commit crimes. It's just something that people need to be aware of, that there are folks who listen to what elected leaders say, and for all elected leaders to be more careful about the words that they're using. The whole country, Ted, watched your eloquent presentation during the impeachment trial. So well thought through combining the facts with the true emotions and challenges caused by January 6th and everything around it. Tell us a little about how you ended up being a member of the impeachment trial of managers and how did that feel, that responsibility that you undertook? So Congressman Cicilline and I started drafting the article of impeachment while on lockdown with the assistance of Congressman Raskin, who we worked with remotely. And it was very clear to us that we had to remove the sitting president and at the very least have this impeachment article as leverage over the then president because we weren't sure what other crazy things he had planned prior to January 20th. After January 20th happened, it was very clear we needed to have an impeachment trial to not only hold the former president accountable, but to send a message to future presidents that they cannot do this ever again. I was very honored that Speaker Pelosi selected me as one of their House impeachment managers. Our goal was to present the facts to the American people and to the U.S. Senate. Again, we got a pretty convincing bipartisan conviction vote of 57 to 43. It was not two-thirds, but it was the largest and most bipartisan conviction vote ever in the U.S. Senate. And when you look at the Republican senators afterwards, including Mitch McConnell, they basically said, we proved our case, that there was no doubt the president incited the insurrection. It's just that a number of them really thought that you couldn't impeach a president who's no longer in office, even though my view is that was not the correct reading of the Constitution. So they base it on a, on a procedural issue. Do you really think they felt that way? Or do you think they used that as an excuse to try to support their party? I think there was clearly more than two thirds of the U.S. Senate that believed the former president incited the insurrection. I do think a number of them used the procedural issue as an excuse to not vote to convict him, which was unfortunate. 
In fact, if you if you listen to Senator McConnell's speech after the trial, it was quite remarkable. He was essentially saying that there was no doubt the former president incited the insurrection. However, because of the procedural issue, he didn't vote to convict. But there's a criminal justice system that could hold him accountable. So basically, Mitch McConnell was one step away from saying, lock him up. It was a pretty remarkable speech when you listen to it from that viewpoint. During the proceedings, did you feel that there was a shot that you'd get a two-thirds vote? Or did you simply feel that this was something that you had to do anyway? Oh, we always knew it was a challenge, but that we could get two-thirds. Every one of us believed we had a shot at convicting the former president because the evidence was so clear. You had hours of videotape evidence of what the president said, how the mob reacted, how they were listening to the president's words. And then you had everything the president did and said in the months and weeks leading up to January 6th. And we put together, I believe, a very compelling case showing that the president incited this insurrection. And a number of Republican senators agreed with us. And even the ones that didn't agree with us did agree that the president, in fact, caused this to happen. They just were hung up on this false procedural issue. I wonder if you could talk about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and why you chose not to use that as your method to accomplish your goals. So one of the interesting things about the last four years is it has shown us parts of the Constitution that no one ever paid attention to, including everyone who went to law school. I can guarantee you no one taught Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in law school. Basically, what Section 3 says is, hey, if you incite an insurrection, you can't hold public office. Seems common sense, right? And we actually do reference, in fact, the 14th Amendment in the article of impeachment. And we do believe that if you incite an insurrection, you should not hold public office. The article impeachment is the process for how Congress not only would impeach an office holder uh, such as the president, but also make sure that that office holder uh, never runs again for office. So that was the purpose of this impeachment. To execute the 14th Amendment by itself, you could conceivably do a separate piece of legislation to try to use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Some scholars have looked at this and they think it might run into problems with something known as a bill of attainder, which is you normally can't pass legislation directed at one single individual. So there are some legal issues with that. But certainly, if the former president were to try to run again, let's say in three and a half years, the courts could look at that and make a ruling as to whether or not, in fact, he could run because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Interesting. But wait a minute, Ted, wouldn't Congress have to take some action? You've said a couple of very interesting things. The way it looked to me and to many people going into it, I think you were right to do the second impeachment, absolutely. But the headcount in terms of how many GOP senators would sign on was always doubtful. So couldn't you have gone forward with the impeachment, but then moved forward to get higher bipartisan support for a resolution or legislation which would bar him from holding future office under Article 14.3? So that runs into the bill of retainer issue that I was referencing. I'm aware of that, but I'm not convinced by that argument. But let's just put that argument to the side for a minute. Yes. So certainly someone right now could introduce a piece of legislation that would say that. Some scholars will also argue that, well, it already is existing law because it's in the Constitution and the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So what would happen is 
if the former president would try to run again, then there would be a court case where- Would there be a court case or would there have to be a bill in Congress first? Well, no, it's a constitutional provision. So someone would essentially bring a court case saying the former president is violating the Constitution of the United States. Interesting. I hadn't heard that and I hadn't thought about that. Very interesting. So I wonder, Ted, if we could cut to a few months later, how does this currently affect your day-to-day experience in Congress? And what's the environment like? And how has it affected the ability for members of Congress to work with each other after such division? If Republican legislators would simply say one simple, truthful sentence, that the election was not stolen, that would mitigate the risk of future political violence. Because they don't say that, we now have National Guard troops in body armor patrolling our capital. So it is unfortunate that Republican legislators are continuing to promote the big lie that somehow this election was stolen when there was zero evidence of that. And by promoting this big lie, some violent people in America believe it, and then they try to act upon that, which is why we have all this additional security at taxpayers' expense. All of that could go away if Republicans simply stopped lying, if they simply said the election was not stolen and that Joe Biden won fair and square. Are you close to a few people on that side of the fence? Some of them. So unfortunately, I was closer to more of them prior to the former president taking office. What happened last four years is a number of moderate Republicans either resigned or they didn't run for re-election or they lost their primaries. So you end up having a smaller more extreme Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. And so I am less friendly with what they number them than I was before. But you guys must have a perspective on whether they really believe that the election was fully stolen. What's going on behind closed doors? Because, you know, some of the stuff that is said seems pretty outrageous, but, you know, these are politics, so you can understand it, sort of. Here we're on Meet Me in the Middle. I imagine you do a lot of meeting people in the middle. So you have a perspective on how they feel inside while they're saying that the election was stolen. That's a great question. So I divide the House Republicans into three groups. Uh, There are the true believers who do believe the election was stolen and believe every word the foreign president says. They're simply true believers. Then there's a group of people that I would define as just very conservative but they're not crazy. And then there's a group of people who I know exactly what's going on and realize how extreme the Republican caucus has gotten. Uh, Those were the folks that voted for impeachment, which is unfortunately a pretty small group. So most of the folks who are dealing with the House Republican caucus are either true believers or extremely conservative. And so when they look at election issues, I believe that they believe that to have more people vote is a bad thing for them. And so they're trying all manner of ways to suppress the vote. And part of this, I think, also has to deal with their own sense of self and their own egos, because they can't handle the view that the overwhelming majority of Americans reject their policies. And so they have to sort of make up a reason for why they no longer hold the White House, Senate, or House. And they sort of come up with this excuse that, it must not be their policies. It must, of course, be something wrong with the way people vote. And so that's why you see Republicans all over the United States trying to pass laws in the states to suppress voters. I think that's part of what is going on. Right. So, Ted, this is a perfect segue to ask you to 
talk a little about the two or three pivotal aspects of HR1. Oh, absolutely. So the House passed HR1 last term. There's a reason we named it HR1. Uh, we believe it's the first and most important bill that we could do because it levels the playing field and makes it so that everyone has a voice on democracy, not just a special interest. Uh, we passed HR1 again this term. One of the things that it does is it would reverse a lot of what Republicans at the state legislature is trying to do in terms of suppressing voters. So this bill would prevent that from happening. It has a number of provisions to expand early voting, to have automatic voter registration, to prevent legislatures from putting up roadblocks to people who want to register to vote or people who want to vote. It's exactly what we need to stop the Republicans in these states from passing all these ridiculous voter suppression laws. Second thing HR1 does is it puts in significant campaign finance reform provisions, and it makes it so that people who give huge amounts of dark money have to disclose. And it also puts in increased transparency measures. And then a third component of HR1 is it has a matching system for people who run in elections of six to one with small dollar donors. So it's a way, again, to make it so that the wealthy and large corporations don't have an outsized voice in our democracy, but that everyone has a voice. And it's exactly the antidote we need for the system that we currently have right now. We could spend a couple of shows on this one subject alone, but with Georgia having passed their new election laws and other states following suit, and clearly I think you feel passionate about HR1 and how important that is under the circumstances, is there any chance that something like that can be passed if you don't deal with the filibuster rule? No. We would need to have a filibuster changed for the bill to pass. The other alternative is it's possible to break out sections of HR1 to see if we can get that passed. So maybe you can't get it passed the entire bill in the Senate, but maybe the voting rights protections, maybe that has a shot. So that's what we're working on right now with the Senate to see if we can get at least components of HR1 passed. With your fellow Democrats, how do you balance the issue of trying to get rid of the need for 60 votes to circumvent the filibuster, while clearly in the next election, there's a risk of having a shift again in the House and Senate, and so you could be on the other side of the fence and need the filibuster rule in place? Has there been discussion on how to balance that? That's a great question. So first of all, I support eliminating the filibuster. At the same time, People have to be very aware of what this means. It would mean that when Republicans gain control, they could also pass their very extreme views into law. So, for example, they could repeal the Civil Rights Act if they felt like it. They could get rid of all federal provisions to protect a woman's right to choose. They could enact all sorts of draconian laws if they wanted to, if the filibuster were not there and you had a Republican in the White House and a Republican-controlled Senate and House. So that's simply a risk of eliminating the filibuster. The reason I would support it is if you do eliminate the filibuster, then not only would you be able to pass laws like HR1, you could also 
make Washington, D.C. a state. You could alter the makeup of the Senate so that it's not so anti-democratic. So you wouldn't have a minority of senators representing a minority of the population of Americans imposing their will on a majority of Americans. Got it. Got it. Okay. Ted, I think the simple truth is they get rid of the filibuster in a heartbeat if it served their purposes. I think elections have consequences. I'm prepared to take those consequences. I think if we fail to govern when you do have power, then the voters end up voting for alternatives. You've got to take the risk of if you lose elections. That's the work of winning the minds and hearts of the people. So I agree with you that elections have consequences. I do note that the Republicans, in fact, did have the House, the Senate, and the White House. The margins were not very big, and they did not get rid of the filibuster for legislation. They could have, but they didn't. And they actually were not the ones that initiated getting rid of the filibuster for judicial appointments. It was Democrats. The honest truth is, if Harry Reid had not opened the door to getting rid of the filibuster for federal judicial appointments, I don't think the Republicans would have opened the door to apply to the Supreme Court appointments. And we would not have had an additional three very conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I do think that Harry Reid opened the door for that to happen. So it is a risk. And if we open the door to a remover for legislation, which I, I do support, but I do reject the view that Republicans would have done this because, in fact, they did not. Is there timing for when that will be addressed? I mean, you've got two very important legislations that are on the on the table. One we're spending the first half of this show on, and the Biden's infrastructure plan will spend the second half of the show on. You got a lot to do. Do you expect to deal with the filibuster in order to get something accomplished? And if so, when? I have uh, no idea how the Senate acts in terms of timing. It is a mystery to me. <laughs> I do know that infrastructure is something we're going to try to get Republican support on. We're going to try to get bipartisan support. But if we can't, we're going to basically use reconciliation, same way we did with the American Rescue Plan, and try to get infrastructure done that way. Uh, we'll see how it works. My view is that as the House continues to pass really good legislation that helps American people and the Senate doesn't act because they're filibuster, that that pressure will keep mounting. And hopefully we'll have Senator Schumer and the Democrats go ahead and modify or eliminate the filibuster. But I, I really don't know what the timing would be on that. Cut about how much time do you have in realistic terms between now and the next election? How much time does this Congress have to get legislation passed? So there's two things happening. Before I came to Congress, I thought, oh, they just fight a lot. So now they've been in Congress, it's true we fight a lot. It's also true a lot of bills do, in fact, get passed on a bipartisan basis signed by a president that you don't hear about. For the same reason, you don't hear about planes that land. Right? It doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't sell advertising on uh, TV shows. Last term, under the former president, there were a bunch of bills that were passed on bipartisan basis that he signed. This term, that's going to still happen. There's going to be a bunch of bills passed on bipartisan basis that President Biden will sign. Now, when you talk about sort of big issues, such as the American Rescue Plan, which we did already pass, or infrastructure, uh, I believe infrastructure will be done sometime this summer, that'll be my guess. And then in the fall, we're going to deal with essentially the, the overall governmental budget and our appropriations bills. So you're going to continue to have bills 
on a variety of subjects that help a variety of different Americans being passed and signed into law. And then on the big issues, I do think infrastructure is either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And we'll know, I think, by the end of summer. Now, when you talk about something like HR1, I do think that for purposes of elections, it would have to be done basically sometime this year. Otherwise, it makes it very hard for the states to implement. We can't sort of drop HR1 on them a few months before the elections next year. Okay, Ted, we'll be back in 30 seconds to dig into your specifics about your vision for Biden's infrastructure plan. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Ted, on March 31st, President Biden announced a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. Can we walk through some of the strategies and get your perspective, please? Let's start with transportation. $621 billion is being allocated to funding improvements for roads and bridges and railways. How do you see that part of the bill? I am really, really pleased with President Biden's infrastructure plan. A few years ago, I had pass an infrastructure resolution. There was a blueprint for basically, if we're going to do infrastructure, what it should look like. And President Biden's infrastructure plan uh, looks very similar to the blueprint that the House passed because it views infrastructure as not just roads and highways and bridges, but also as infrastructure for the 21st century, including investments in workforce training investments in research and development, clean water, getting lead pipes out, investments in make sure we have broadband everywhere, including in rural areas as well as inner cities. So it is a very comprehensive package that is exactly what America needs for 21st century. And on the transportation part, it will go a long way to fixing up our roads, bridges, and highways. And the money that you cited, a lot of that would actually have matching funds. And so states and localities will also be putting in their own money as well. And so you're gonna have a large number of projects that are gonna go forward and it's gonna create millions of good paying jobs. A lot of these sections of this bill involve private sector building things, coming to the table. Tell us a little about how we're going to execute the private sector bidding. I mean, we've all heard the stories about the $16,000 hammers and the $750 a night for immigrants at the border. And the private sector tends to charge the government whatever they can. How do we be efficient in this case? So that's a great point you make. Just so you understand, it's always the private sector building stuff. Um, It's not like the government really sort of has this huge workforce of construction workers. The way that our country is structured, the government basically puts out contracts and then it's a private sector that goes ahead and and builds. And so clearly we're going to have to make sure that the bidding processes and the oversight over the contracts is done in a way that makes sure that everything is at the best possible deal for the government. The House does in fact have a special committee that Speaker Pelosi set up exactly for oversight over how a lot of these funds are being spent. And that was set up because of the COVID relief packages that we passed last year. 
So I imagine this same committee will also look at oversight over the spending for a law this year that has a lot of these contracts going out, in addition to the normal oversight you get from the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, as well as their House Oversight Committee. So that Oversight Committee will ensure that private individuals who have influence over government officials don't find themselves with lucrative contracts that kind of waste the money that we're looking to spend efficiently. Well, that would be illegal uh, if that happened. Then how do you explain the $750 a night at the border for the immigrants? I think folks who are doing that, they should be looking at whether they engage in price gouging. It depends on the specific laws at issue. There are various laws that say you can't actually use a crisis or emergency to price gouge. Absolutely think that should be looked at. But it's always historically been the case that government hands out these contracts with a bidding process, and then you have the private sector put in their bids, and then the best bid gets selected. So there's a problem with those bids or something is wrong with uh, the process, then that should also be looked at. Okay. So $174 billion of it, Ted, is going to be used to kind of bolster the electric vehicle market, giving consumers rebates and tax incentives to buy American-made electric vehicles. So how do you regulate the cost of e-vehicles from the private sector companies that also benefit from the sales? I'm not sure government should be in the position of regulating electric car prices. If the government is subsidizing the purchase of those vehicles, it certainly allows the private sector to increase the price as a result. Yes, it does. My view is we, first of all, can't stop technological progress. Uh, So even without the government doing anything, Porsche has announced they're going to have all electric vehicles by 2035. GM soon after followed suit. So my view is as a government, we could ignore that or we're going to help it along. And I think we should help it along. I think we should speed up having non-fossil fuel automobiles on our roads and highways. I also would oppose the government regulating the prices of how much cars should be sold. I'm not sure that's government's role. So here's one that's near and dear to my heart, Ted. Home care services and workforce. There's $400 billion being allocated to bolstering caregiving for aging and disabled Americans. I went through the challenge with my dad, and where Biden is going to devote tremendous budget to older Americans and their families to receive care in their homes, this would seem to be a powerful opportunity, A, to take care of our elderly, but also B, to create a training process and education to find more care workers. And I assume that this is kind of a multi-tiered approach to that subject. Yes. And I think it's fantastic that the Biden administration is focused on this very important issue to a lot of Americans, not just the elderly, but also to the children of the elderly. And so this is something that I've been fighting for. I'm a big believer in home care services It's interesting you raise this issue because I recently saw on Fox News, not that I watch it all the time, but Fox News had a graphic where they had listed four controversial elements of the Biden plan. And the first one they listed was $400 billion for expanding care to the elderly. And my first thought was, you know, that's not controversial to the overwhelming majority of Americans. I think the overwhelming majority of Americans would welcome that. And so this is a fight that Democrats are absolutely going to have, and we're going to win it uh, because it's very important that we expand 
this kind of care for the elderly. I also want to note that it's also a reflection of the reality of what's happened in the last several decades. Because of how amazing science is and advancements in medical care and technology, it's simply a fact that people are living longer. For a number of them, they're living longer. However, their quality of life is not as great. So medical technology has extended people's ability to live longer, but sometimes you're not going to be at the best sort of living conditions you could be because you're aging. And people in this situation do need people to care for them. And so it's also a reflection of just the reality of what has happened in the last several decades. Sure, sure. And and right now, Medicare makes it easier to put someone in a nursing home than to leave them at home where they're comfortable and get them adequate care there. This would be a powerful move, I think. Yes, absolutely. Let's move over to manufacturing. $300 billion to manufacturing, semiconductor manufacturing, something near and dear to your heart, I believe, and medical manufacturing and biotech. Again, of course, this is supporting private industry like Intel, NVIDIA, is it pronounced, and, and advanced micro devices. How do we deal with the idea of supporting private sector businesses in order to better the lives of the citizens of the U.S.? I think the Biden plan is very smart in how it goes about this with respect to manufacturing. The president doesn't just take the view that, hey, let's just you know help all manufacturing because that's simply not smart. We're simply not going to compete in the 21st century economy uh, making socks or making pencils. And it's because our cost of living is too high or property values are too high. We don't have uh, some of the very poor working conditions that other countries have. And so when you look at uh, very low-skilled manufacturing, we're not going to be able to compete in that area. And the president doesn't try to have us compete in that area. He, in fact, focuses on uh, sort of the higher level of manufacturing where we have competed and continue to compete and do quite well. And so I'm very pleased with his manufacturing proposal, and he's really looking at positioning America for the 21st century and to really take advantage of uh, our competitive advantages. And so this is something that hopefully we can also get past uh, as part of the infrastructure package, making sure that we do smart manufacturing and retain it in America. Apparently, about $46 billion of this is for federal purchases like electronic cars, charging ports, electric heat pumps, and such for commercial buildings. Are those for federal buildings? There is, as you say, a huge component to retrofit buildings and to make them energy efficient, make them greener, and also to retrofit different places for housing as well. So part of it would be federal buildings, but I'm pretty sure part of it would not be. But don't quote me on that. I have to look at the specific provision. Here's a big one that sounds to me like in comparison, it's probably not enough money, but housing, $213 billion for building, renovating, and retrofitting 2 million homes and housing units. It sounds great. Is that low-cost housing, but is that for whom, and are these owned by private individuals right now? Or can all these plans that act through private industry be kind of in the form of low interest loans, perhaps long-term loans? So that's possible. So in terms of housing, 
certain areas, such as California, we do have a housing crisis. It also leads to homelessness as well. So this is a very important part of the Biden plan. It's something that would particularly benefit California as well. We simply have to improve and increase our housing supply. It is also going to be written by Congress. Uh, and so a lot of the details will be fleshed out in the various committees. And I'm not sure at this exact moment in time, we know exactly how it's going to look when this bill is introduced sometime in May. Got it. So we're going to take a very quick break and we're going to come back, Ted, and talk about the realities of how this can all be paid for. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcocom slash a moment of your time. Ted, let's hop into research and development. There's $180 billion allocated for climate science, innovation, and research and development. What exactly does that mean? Uh, this is a fantastic component of the Biden infrastructure plan. It's forward looking and it is in there because America can't compete unless we have significant government investments in research and development. One of the reasons we have an amazing, for example, industry in terms of medicine and in terms of pharmaceuticals is because of the amazing investment that government has made for decades into basic research. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that we have an amazing aerospace sector and Silicon Valley and all these other industries, a lot of that was also because of early investments by government. And the Biden infrastructure plan views this as critical infrastructure, which is exactly the way we should be thinking about this in the 21st century. And I'm just so excited that we have all this government investment into basic research and uh, R&D. Ted, if you don't mind, I'm going to skip over the $100 billion for water. Obviously, we need to get rid of all the lead piping infrastructure. And let's go to schools, if we may. We've got about $100 billion for schools, which sounds to me comparatively also a bit anemic. But we want to upgrade the existing buildings, better ventilation systems, update technology labs, and even improve school kitchens. How do you look at this part of the bill? And it seems like schools and education is really one of the top important things to us as a country. My better half, uh, my wife, Betty, is president of the Torrance School Board, and she's super excited uh, about this provision, as am I. We have to make sure that our schools are also equipped for the 21st century economy. And this pandemic has shown us uh, that we clearly need better ventilation systems in many of our schools. Uh, we also have to uh, make sure uh, that as we go forward, that all schools are equipped with broadband access and that their facilities are upgraded. And when you look at investments in education, it turns out that that actually increases your GDP because you're giving 
young people the skills and the environment and the training they need to be productive members of society when they graduate. So investment in schools always pays off in the long run. But federal investment in schools is an interesting angle because a lot of the investment in schools is really more local than that, isn't it? It is primarily local. Uh, most of education funding is done through states and not the federal government. But it doesn't mean the federal government doesn't have any role. And so uh, the Biden administration uh, is going to put in this money to assist schools. I also note that, again, a number of the funds that the federal government is spending will also be matched by the local states and, and localities as, as well. So it is additional money to improve schools. And also it helps create new jobs. And I think this is great. Getting our population educated is a big part of staying competitive in the 21st century. Is there any talk in Congress about making college more affordable and free college, at least free state tuition through college for qualified students? There is money here for community colleges. I don't know if there's money specifically for four-year state universities, but let me look into that. Which actually leads, Jane, into the last area that I wanted to discuss, the $100 billion for workforce development. Is this like teaching coal miners and oil workers to build roads and e-vehicle charging stations, or is that too much to hope for in a bill like this? It could be applied to pretty much any uh, worker retraining. When I was in California State Legislature, I was chair of the Labor and Industrial Relations Committee, and we had oversight over uh, the workforce investment programs. And I remember when we first looked at it, what went up happening is you would have these sort of one-stop career centers where someone lost their job, they would walk in and they get information about different jobs. And what would happen is they would try very hard, let's say if you lost a low-wage clerical job, to put you into another low-wage clerical job. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. My view is I think we should retrain these folks into jobs that industries actually need and for jobs in the 21st century. So I got through my committee a provision where about a third of the monies had to go to workforce retraining. And I'm very pleased that the Biden plan now allocates money to do just that. Because as every year goes by and the economy changes, there's going to be workers who are displaced for a variety of reasons. And we need to help them get retrained for a position that industry actually needs. And whether it's because of technology, climate change, or other factors that's causing displacement in the kinds of industries and jobs that are happening, you're going to need workforce retraining programs to assist those who no longer have those jobs. Ted, I, I would imagine there can't be a lot of people who would actually take a look at this plan and say that the plan is a bad thing or that we don't need these investments, the argument is going to be how we pay for it, right? Correct. A poll came out, for example, showing 86% of American people support workforce retraining programs. Assuming that we all want to invest in our future, do you think our government is able to spend efficiently? For example, most of the discussion so far to pay for this is about tax, you know, which of course makes it harder to pass. Instead of admitting that there are areas of waste in the government and how we spend back to the idea that the Pentagon was found to be totally unauditable, and how come we don't have a program that says, well, maybe it would be easier or a better philosophy to fund a plan by saying it's going to be one-third serious reconsideration and review of current government spending, and two-thirds is going to be paid for by tax. I find with trying to look at ways to 
get better contracts uh, for the government. I do think certainly we should try to tighten any waste, fraud, and abuse that is out there. The government has huge programs out there for people to file complaints if they see waste, fraud, and abuse. You've got an entire press corps out there uh, who will report stories uh, about uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. If you actually look at the enormous number of government contracts that happen every day from the federal government to the state to local government, you don't actually read a huge number of stories about waste, fraud, and abuse. But you will read some of them every now and then, and those should be taken care of. It's not as if we could simply say, oh, we're just going to change some processes here, and then you know, we're going to magically come up with $2 trillion. That, that just isn't going to happen. We've talked about a corporate tax hike. The only other tax I'd really like to talk about is the idea of a global minimum tax, basically asking other countries to cooperate with us. It's almost like when you're competing between different towns that want an Amazon warehouse and you say, well, let's cooperate and standardize our offering. It's not realistic. How are we going to get other countries to agree to cooperate with us on such things as global minimum taxes? You know, I don't actually know the answer to that. I will look into that issue. Until you raised it, I had actually not not thought of that issue about a global minimum tax. So let me let me look into that issue. But I do want to talk about the corporate uh, tax rate. The Republican tax law took the corporate tax rate of thirty five percent, brought it down to twenty one percent. At the same time, they actually raised taxes on middle class families across California because of their salt tax uh, limit that they put in, which I believe should be repealed. I think the state local income tax deduction limit that Republicans put in, I think that should be repealed. But what the corporate tax rate would be under the Biden plan is to go from 21 to 28 percent, which is still less than what it was before the Republican tax law. So I think it's a very reasonable um, request by the Biden administration. And hopefully the U.S. Senate will see it that way as well. Okay. And I know we only have one minute left, but I can't help but change the subject altogether. This is an important subject, Ted clearly one to you that you've taken a serious position on. And how do you propose to address and quickly change discrimination against Asian Americans? Well, thank you for that question. My view is that America is an exceptional country. It's one reason I serve an active duty in the U.S. military. But we're not perfect. And if you look at our history, you'll see, especially when there are times of fear, that minorities will get scapegoated. And so we had the whole yellow peril hysteria in the 1850s, followed by the Chinese Exclusion Act. Then we had the internment of over 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent in World War II. In the 1980s, when America feared the rise of Japan, you had additional hate crimes. And Vincent Chen was murdered in Detroit because they thought he was taking away jobs. You then had the pandemic that's now causing an additional surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans. Part of this is education. Part of it is raising awareness and having people report hate crimes and hate incidents when they see it. And part of it is uh, changing uh, the laws. And so I'm working on legislation to make hate crimes prosecutions uh, easier because the courts have unfortunately read the laws really quite restrictively and made it difficult to prosecute. And then we have to devote more resources uh, to agencies and nonprofits to counter uh, hate incidents and hate crimes. Ted Lu, thank you so much for your participation here today. I know we've kept you a lot longer than we promised. How can people follow you, Ted? I have an official account, which is at 
rep Ted Lou, and then on my own personal account, which is just at Ted Lou on social media. Wonderful. And Jane Albrecht, thank you too for joining. We really appreciate, Ted, your directness, and we hope you'll come back again. Thank you, Bill and Jane. Thank you, Ted. Really honored to be on your show. Jane, we've watched a lot of politicians on a lot of interview shows, and you have to admit that we asked Ted some really tough questions. I think we did, and I've seen Ted in a lot of settings, and he always impresses me by how well-informed he is, how substantive he is, and how he does answer tough questions directly, substantively, and in a way that people with different frames of references can understand. I was really thrilled with how honest he is, how thoughtful he is, how he's willing to say, I don't know when he doesn't know. And the depth of his answers were really surprising today, don't you think? I think Ted has progressed in an ideal way. He got to Congress, he worked hard, he impressed people, and he's just sort of slowly gained in national prominence. Well, that's it for this show. Thank you, Ted Liu, Jane Albrecht. Ted, we appreciate your directness, and I do hope you'll come back again. And to you, listening, don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next Meet Me in the Middle. And thank you to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. And music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. The executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. And a special thanks to Jane Albrecht for all you do to forward the point of this show. Bye-bye, everybody. It will be From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.